This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. All right, good morning. Turn with me, please, to the book of James in the Bible. If you're here this morning, you don't have a copy of the scriptures. If you'll raise your hand, our ushers will bring you a free copy of the Bible, and you can follow along with us in James chapter 4. Leave your hands up, and they'll spot you and bring you. take that home with you. Or you can walk, watch it on your phone as long as you covenant together with me not to look at the World Cup while I'm preaching today. Of course, I just reminded many of you it was coming on at 11. Now, oh, good. Oh, yeah. Some of you are, what's the World Cup? James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to read again our, our text that we were devoting two, two Sundays to. James 4, 1 through 12. Part 2 of what changes you. Verse 1. This is God's holy inspired, inerrant word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you 
to judge your neighbor. I believe the main point today that the Lord wants us to get, as we look again at James 4 here, is that we can get His attention with our humility. We can get His attention with humility. The book of James, as we've seen, is a letter filled with wisdom. It's wisdom literature. By, by definition, wisdom is the art of understanding the best life. As we study Scripture, we learn the course of our lives always travels in one, or two, uh, one of two directions. We either walk on the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. Now the path towards foolishness is easy. All you have to do is do what you want to do. All you have to do is follow your desires, your selfish desires. And it has short-term rewards. There are perks along the way on the path of foolishness. But these rewards are deceptive. Thus the need for wisdom literature. It's a mirage. In, in the book of James and other wisdom literature and Scripture, the focus is always, you'll notice, on the end. The end of the matter. For example, Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. It's a mirage. The path of foolishness is easy, but in the end you're going to experience misery. According to Scripture, you're going to experience death. You'll be overwhelmed by the consequences that inevitably come from foolish decisions. Your relationships will be in tatters in the end. On the other hand, the path of wisdom is hard, but good. Eventually, walking on that path ends well. If we persevere on the path of wisdom, we're going to escape misery. You may have heard about, I'm sure you did, the 12 boys and their soccer coach who were rescued from a dark flooded cave in northern Thailand this week. It was a great moment. They were underground for two weeks. The wild boars was their name. They ranged in age from 11 to 16. They rode their bikes after practice on June 23rd down to a cave near where they were practicing and they went exploring. They didn't heed the warnings that they received that the cave flooded during the rainy season. It was initially dry, but then came the rains and there were flash floods in the cave and they were forced into a little elevated area in the cave to survive. They stayed there for 10 days with only a few snacks and a little bit of water and eventually two British rescue divers found them. It took officials six days to consider their very poor options to rescue these boys. In the end, they were forced to fit them with breathing equipment and fixed ropes to guide them out. It, it was 
likely they wouldn't make it. As I was reading about it, I, I really was hopeless. I, I just didn't think they were going to make it because cave diving is the riskiest form of scuba diving. And these boys were not cave divers. Maybe it's my fear of caves kicking in, but I was afraid. Caves are dark. They're pitch black. Sometimes you can only see for a couple inches. They have, they're full of rock formations, jagged rocks that can hurt you. Even experienced divers get lost and miscalculate their air supply. But they sent dozens and dozens of divers down into the cave to rescue these boys. It was one of the most challenging emergency rescue operations in history. They had to guide these 12 boys one at a time through these paths, this semi-submerged cave, to an entrance that was two miles away. One former Thai Navy SEAL died when he ran out of air. None of the boys had ever been scuba diving. Some of them, many of them couldn't swim. And this cave was just, even cave divers said, you don't cave dive there. So they took the oxygen tanks, the face masks, the guide ropes, anti-anxiety medication. I would have said, give me a double dose. Seven hour journey for each boy. They had to go through strong currents. They had... Spaces at time two feet high. I would have just died. Just died. But all were brought safely out of the cave. Thank the Lord. And just say no to cave diving in the future, by the way. Now, as I read that, I thought about our text. I thought about wisdom. I thought about the path. We're in a cave called this fallen world. We're on a dangerous journey to a wonderful world filled with oxygen, and it's big. God is in control. He, he provides everything we need. He gives more grace. His grace is sufficient for our rescue, for our ultimate rescue. Each and every person, those, those wonderful Thai Navy SEALs that had the wisdom and the courage to rescue these boys, they're like the Spirit of God. He provides for us every day what we need. He gives life. He gives power. He provides for us what we need to overcome every obstacle. His daily provisions are like oxygen. The very things we need for deliverance. The guide ropes are like the letter of James. They're fixed by the Spirit for us to cling to today on our way out. God speaks to us through His Word. That's why we're here for a second Sunday. And we can never be lost. Digging into James is like clinging to the rope. And if we persevere on this path of wisdom, it's hard. But it's good. And we'll escape. And we'll taste the fresh air. So what changes us? Here is wisdom for a journey. How can we escape the world, the flesh, and the devil that we talked about last week? Last week we said, what changes us? Our desires, our humility. 
God's grace. Today, we're going to take a, a close look at James 4, and we're going to unpack humility. Humility changes you because God gives grace to the humble. And there's a number of expressions of humility in this text that we're going to look at closely. First of all, submission to God. Second of all, true repentance or biblical repentance. And, and finally, biblical communication. Number one, submission to God. It's an expression of humility. This is a command, verse 7, submit yourselves to God. It's to be obeyed by every follower of Christ. The Word of God says to us today, it's imperative that we submit to God, that we be humble before Him. It's an enlistment word. It's like we're going to join with God and we're going to fight with Him under His banner. And, and it speaks, this submission speaks of a readiness. We're just eager. We're waiting for His command so that we can obey Him. Submit yourselves to God. Then He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. The devil is the poster child for pride. And he stirs up pride in God's people. He stirs up selfish ambition. That's what we looked at last week that was behind all the fights and quarrels. He's the architect of these wars, this murder in the church. He promotes jealousy. He promotes envy. He encourages selfish ambition. He gives fake wisdom. He tries to get people on the easy path of foolishness. He's the enemy. James is a wise pastor. And he cares about the people that he is writing to. And he knows if those he cares for submit to God, they're going to have to resist this enemy. When we humble ourselves and we submit to God, we have to man the defenses against the devil's attacks. And there are no breaks in the action. Some of you feel weary this morning because you're in the war. That's just the way it is. There's never a ceasefire. The attacks are constant. So many times people get off the path of wisdom because they're just tired of the war. But submitting to God doesn't free us from the war. In fact, deciding to submit to, to God is what brings us under fire. This is what draws attention to us. This is what provokes His attacks. Pride is the first sin. It's the essence of all sin. It will keep you from submitting to God. It's the most serious sin. There's no sin that God hates more than pride. He says in Proverbs 16, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. The arrogant man, the arrogant woman. Pride is an abomination. That's the strongest language in Scripture for sin. Now why would this be the Lord's perspective? 
Because the proud person absolutely refuses to submit to God. Pride is when sinful creatures, sinful human beings, created by God, desire and pursue God's position, His status. It's, it's people refusing to acknowledge that they depend on Him. It lifts people up against God. They're competing with Him. They refuse to submit to His authority. The truth is, you and me are totally dependent on God. We are not only dependent, we're guilty. And He's the holy judge. So, so pride is just so out of place for us. It's an abomination. That's His view, and it's a right view. It's a true view. A proud person seeks to glorify himself or herself. Not God. The result is that God is robbed of His glory and His creation is robbed of His glory. And His glory is the best. And that's why it's an abomination. One application is, is the... What pride does to the unity of the church. We've seen this in this text. We talked about it last week. This is the church that God, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, bought this church with His blood. Sent His only Son to die. So that He would have the church, the people of God, redeemed by Christ. But pride leads to division in the church. His church that he loves, that James loves, Pastor James loves. It's, it's encouraging, it's helpful, I shouldn't say it's encouraging, but it's helpful to understand that this is to be expected. War is to be expected. It was taking place in the New Testament. God isn't surprised by division in the church that's caused by pride. Pride is what's behind the disunity. It divides people, it divides family, and it divides the church. The, the great Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, called pride the gunpowder of the mind. The family, the church, the gunpowder. It, it makes people ambitious. They, they want to be first. They want to be great. So if you go before them, or if you overlook them, or if you neglect to compliment them or to honor them, or especially if you correct them or reprove them, if you tell them their faults, you put the fire to the gunpowder and kaboom. You've broken their peace and they will break your peace, says Baxter. Like humility, pride has many expressions, but only one end. Pride only has one end, and that is self-exaltation, the glory of man. And so verse 6 could not be more clear. Our Bible says, God opposes the proud. He's quoting Proverbs 3, and he's unpacking that verse where 
It says that to the scorners he is scornful. Pride is the sin of the devil, the worst of evils. And God is opposed to pride immediately in our lives and constantly. He is the proud man and the proud woman's enemy, according to Scripture. We, we should ask this morning, am I being opposed by God? On the other hand, verse 6, he says, God gives grace to the humble. He gives favor. Grace is God's favor to those who deserve His wrath. He gives grace. Grace is all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Grace is sufficient. Grace is amazing. Grace changes you. It's hard to imagine something more comforting. God is passionately for the humble. When we, when we submit to Him, He never fails to provide what we need. He always has more grace at hand. And grace is just what we need. His, his resources, His grace never runs out. The tank is never empty. His patience is never exhausted. For, for the humble... His generosity that we've seen again and again and again in this letter of James knows no limits. Isaiah 66 says, All things my hand is made, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, all things, all these things my hand has made, and so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one. This is the one to whom I will look. He is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one God says I, I will look at. Humility gets God's attention. The Lord doesn't have eyes. He's a spirit. Plus, He's all-knowing. He knows everything. But in Isaiah 66, He wants to get our attention so that we will know what gets His attention. Nothing's hidden from His sight. Nothing misses His attention. He is aware of everything, but certain things capture His attention. God looks for humility. He looks for men and women who submit to Him. Humility attracts His attention. He is actively opposed to pride and He is drawn to humility. He's drawn to the humble man. He's drawn to the humble woman. And verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You get His attention, and He will lift you up. He will support you. He will give you grace. And there is nothing better than to have an infinitely powerful, an infinitely wise God treat you graciously. Humility is a confession of emptiness. And it receives grace. It's submitting to God's self-sufficiency while acknowledging your need for Him. And He is drawn to that. It is wise to be humble. It is foolish to be arrogant. Here's the guide rope. 
Wisdom says humility is your friend. So, <laughs> how can I cultivate humility? Just one point of application. Pray. Humility can only survive in the presence of God. In prayer, you can acknowledge your dependence on God. This is what prayer is. It's an acknowledgement of His sovereignty. It's an acknowledgement of our need for Him to act on our behalf. Confess to God in prayer. God, I need You. That's how we can cultivate and grow humility daily in prayer. God, I, I need you. Sherry and I were out partying down one night. And we ran across a man the other night with a, a black shirt with big white letters that said, Prayer fails every time. I smacked him. No, I didn't. Prayer I didn't. I didn't do that. Prayer fails every time, but it caught our attention. It was meant to. Big black shirt, white bold letters. Prayer fails every time. Man, I just wanted to do my old atheist trick. Okay, this circle represents all knowledge. How much do you think you have? You know, could, could it possibly be that there's answered prayer out there? Anyway. I didn't do that either. The letter of James, though, repeatedly promises that God answers prayer. James 5 says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power. So I told this guy that, and he changed his shirt. We, we can assume this guy... I didn't do that either. It, we can assume... This guy does not think he's dependent on God. We can assume that he, he is not submitting to God. Because submitting to God in prayer is an expression of humility. It's a recognition of our need for God. And, and this man apparently doesn't pray. He apparently refuses to acknowledge this. The truth is, according to the Apostle Paul preaching in Acts 17, he said... The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. God doesn't need us. He Himself, though, gives to all mankind life, breath, everything. That's, that's the truth. Pride is self-sufficiency and prayer undermines it. Number two, the second expression of humility here in James chapter 4 that we see is true repentance. Verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I noticed I didn't get any applause as I read that verse this morning. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a great promise from Scripture. You probably pulled that out this morning and just to cheer yourself up. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. But it, but it actually is a verse that leads to incredible joy. 
because it leads to change. It's an expression of humility. It brings God's grace. It's about true repentance. Notice, James assumes a need to repent. He says, cleanse your hands, quote, you sinners. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to churches. He assumes believers who are, who are made right through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who are justified by their faith so that they're accepted by God, their sins are forgiven, His wrath that they deserve has been satisfied through the cross of Jesus Christ, but He assumes they still sin. So He calls them, you sinners. He knows they're still sinners. And He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, if, if you've been studying the letter of James, you know that's just another way to say you sinners. Double-minded is an individual that doesn't have genuine faith. They go back and forth between unbelief and faith. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So, repent. Cleanse your hands, he says. What you're doing, your work, it's sinful. Cleanse them so that what you do will be righteous. Purify your heart. Let your passions be purified. So they're not, so that you're not being led by your selfish desires and your coveting and your prayers are squandered. Repent. Turn your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom because of your sin. In July of 1521, Martin Luther, who we talked a lot about last year as we looked at Galatians, he was holed up in Wartburg Castle working on the first translation of the Bible into the German language. The Reformation had begun. It was a revival. The Holy Spirit was being poured out and he was leading the revival. And God had changed his life and now he's secluded in the castle I've been there, went there last fall, my wife Sherry and I. It's a, just a beautiful setting. I think I could be happy there. I mean, it's just incredible. He's translating the Bible. Revival is breaking out. And you would think he would be on a spiritual high. Listen to what he wrote during this time. I sit here at ease. Okay, He's translating the German Bible midst of the Reformation. Hardened and unfeeling. Praying little grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. I should be a fire in the Spirit. In reality, I'm a fire in the flesh. With lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. For the last eight days, I've written nothing. I haven't prayed. I haven't studied I've just been given to self-indulgence. I can't stand it any longer. Pray for me, I beg you. For in my seclusion, here I am, submerged in sins. Now, was Luther overreacting? Was he one of these morbidly introspective people that just needs to 
have a higher self-esteem? It doesn't sound like James would think that way. It sounds like James would say, that's the kind of language I use. Maybe Luther see, saw his sin, and we don't see our sin. And that's why we don't speak like he does. There, there is a syndrome, a damage to the brain, that causes people to think they can see, but they can't. They're totally blind, but they're unaware of it. They, they will vividly describe to the doctor everything about their surroundings, but none of what they, quote, see actually exists. They, and they don't see what is actually there. They are blind. It's a dramatic illustration of what happens when the brain is damaged, when the visual system God's given us is damaged. And it's characterized by a fierce denial of blindness. They, they say their vision's fine. But in fact, they can't see it all. And it's possible that we don't speak about our sin like James and Martin Luther because we don't see our sin. And James is a guide rope. It helps us see. And so, he wants us to see. And then he wants us to say. He wants us to be wretched. He wants us to mourn. It's strong language calling for true repentance. He wants us to see it. He wants our laughter when we see the sin. He wants us to see it so we'll mourn our sin. It's a call. It's a call to repentance. It's an expression of humility. Turn away from sin. As we went through Galatians, we, we, we talked a lot about Luther and his 95 theses that he tacked on the castle church door in Wittenberg that sparked the Great Reformation, the revival, his concern, Luther's concern, was legalism. He was concerned about justification by faith. In fact, he was so concerned about it, he didn't want James in the Bible, remember? Uh, initially. He came around later. But I don't think he ever was overjoyed about the letter of James. Because I think he missed the Gospel message in it. But my point is, is that Luther was all about the Gospel. Yet the first thesis of the 95 said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He loved justification by faith, but Luther understood how important true repentance was. He was passionate about the Gospel of free Grace, the good news. We're accepted by God, by grace alone. He believed, Luther believed, the, the favor of God we receive is because of Christ's death, because of His resurrection, because He ever lives 
to intercede for us. He stands before us in a holy God. And as a result, because we're united to Christ by faith, we're accepted. James believed this too. We're saved. We're accepted through Christ. Apart from our good works. Apart from our efforts. And if we aren't sure about this, if we aren't sure that God loves us because of Christ, then repentance can just become something to keep us on God's good side. It, it can become a, a good work that we're using to try to gain God's acceptance, to impress Him, so we'll have compassion on it. If this is repentance, it's rooted in self-righteousness. And Luther and James are opposed to that kind of legalistic repentance. That's not what this is about. At the same time, the key to growing and to becoming more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is repentance. If we forget the freeness of grace, then repentance becomes a means of gaining God's acceptance. But true repentance is rooted in genuine faith, which is what the letter of James is all about. He wants to make sure our, our faith is genuine. And true repentance is rooted in genuine faith. Faith in God's willingness to accept us and forgive us because of Christ. It releases us to look at our sin and see our sin and repent of our sin. Because hope arises in the promises of God that we believe. Repentance is motivated by grace. Legalistic repentance is destructive, but this kind of repentance is what changes us. The only hope of legalistic repentance is a moralistic religion. Luther hated that. James hates that. He would confront that. But when we know we're loved, when we know we're accepted, in spite of our sins, then we can, we can admit our flaws. We can admit our sins. We can admit our faults with joy and gladness. And then this repentance is a guide rope. And we're, we're heading out. And we, we deny ourselves these fleeting pleasures, short-term perks of sin, so that we can have pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. So, why are you miserable? Why do you mourn? Why do you weep? I thought about this and I thought, you know, when I'm weeping and mourning and gloomy, it's usually not because of my sin. It's because some selfish desire has not been fulfilled. I want that to change. Finally, another expression of humility in James 4 is biblical communication. Verse 11 and 12, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. He judges the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Refusing to participate in that kind of evil speech is an expression of humility. 
unbiblical communication patterns were a problem in the church of the first century, and they're a problem today. We would all say that. But this command could not be clear. Do not speak evil against one another. And this endearing term that Pastor James uses, brothers, my brothers in Christ, my sisters in Christ, don't speak evil against each other. But it's so commonplace among Christians. In fact, some would say, it seems true to me, it's more common in the church than it is outside the church. Because of evil speech, relationships that are so critical to the church of Jesus Christ, they flounder. There's murder in the church, so to speak. And the church is greatly hindered. My friend Jake, fellow pastor Jake, sent me an article. He knew I was coming to this text, and he said, I think this might help you. An article from the, the magazine The Atlantic, basically adjusting the bad rap that gossip is getting. Especially negative gossip. That's the focus of the article. It's called, Gossiping is Good. Gossip makes us better people. It has a, a, a positive social effect. He's talking about negative gossip. It makes people prouder of themselves. When other people are thrown under the bus, they feel better about themselves. You're laughing. This was a dead serious article. We learn lessons from it. It, it promotes cooperation. It boosts your self-esteem. James disagrees. You follow this advice, you're going to lose your grip and you're going to drown in that cave. Do you try to communicate according to biblical guidelines? Look at your relationship. What do they reveal about your communication habits? It will change you. It will change you. All through this letter, we just keep coming back to the tongue, don't we? I can't help it. That's James' idea. This is a gift from God. This is God. This is what God wants churches to talk about. And that's why you do expository preaching, so you walk through letters, so you don't get to choose. Honestly, I'd say, are we going to talk about the tongue again, James? You know, I think they're getting tired of talking about that. I don't get to say that. We don't get to study that. He's repeatedly addressed the heart attitudes that direct our communication. He wants our speech to be godly. Do not speak evil of one another. When we speak evil of someone, we're judging them. We're judging them. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. That should make you tremble. You're not submitting to God. You're usurping His role. You're not a doer of the Word when you speak evil of others. You're a proud person and you're not submitting to God. You're taking His place. James wants us to repent. 
I had two friends I was very close to. I knew them both very well. I spent a lot of time with each of them. Both were pastors. Many ways, they both served their churches very well for many years. One of my friends was, by his own admission, proud. Pride was a unique struggle for him. He said that to me many times. He tended to be self-righteous, legalistic, and ambitious. The other friend was one of the most, I'd say the most truly humble man I've ever known. With one exception, Jerry Bridges, and he doesn't count. He was like, you know, come on. This friend understood the grace of God. He understood the gospel. He mentored me in the gospel. He helped me. He helped many other people grow their understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ and what it meant for the believer. Full of joy. Always full of joy. Wasn't self-righteous. Wasn't legalistic. Wasn't ambitious. Loved to encourage. Always speaking well of others ad nauseum. My proud friend, though, felt overlooked. He felt he wasn't honored. Wasn't complimented. Felt neglected. He was offended. When I brought this to his attention, among others, and this put the fire to the gunpowder, that was his pride. His peace was broken, so he decided to destroy my humble friend, and he succeeded. He used the internet to speak evil of my humble friend whose reputation has been destroyed beyond repair. It will never be repaired. No one's even trying. My, my proud friend, he destroyed his family. He destroyed his church. But he succeeded in harming my humble friend. He burnt my friend to the ground. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. I try to encourage my humble friend that he can rest assured that God will write all wrongs. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't think it's going to be in this life. But he will give his grace to the humble. And somehow he will turn evil to good. James is calling us, let's never do that. I don't want to do that to my worst enemy. I don't want to speak evil. I don't want to be on the internet. I don't even watch cable news anymore. All it is is sinful Evil communication. Now, that doesn't mean you can't watch it. I'm just telling you, I'm over it. And especially in the church. What's going to change us is getting God's attention with humility. 
listen, the gospel means forgiveness. Gospel means grace to change. I love the hope of the gospel, don't you? We can be a church that glorifies and honors God. James says, humble yourself, resist the devil, submit to God. Hold on to that guide rope. Be led by the Spirit. And one day, one day, we're going to be delivered. Pray with me. Father, thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, we need your grace. We look at the text like this, Lord, and we thank you for the text, but when we look at it, Lord, it is tempting to despair. So we turn our attention now as we conclude this meeting to song and to sing of the gospel, to sing of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, change us. Lord, we want to humble ourselves. We want to get your attention. And we want to receive abundant grace for the glory of God. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ who we're united to because we trust in Him alone. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.